you're dealing in investing and in poker um, with a lot of problem solving. One thing that I've noticed is that everyone thinks they've got the best idea and everyone thinks they're the greatest. You need to make use a lot of analysis, deductive reasoning, and sort of employ, I would say, probabilistic thinking. Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. What's up, guys? Today we've got a uh, guest straight off the corporate streets of sorts, one of the top executives, managers. Um, you're going to have to explain exactly what you do, but someone who's uh, really crushed, I would say, appropriately crushed in the corporate world, in the real estate, uh, not real estate, excuse me, private equity world, and also uh, one of the um, highest stakes gamblers in poker there is. He plays enormous stakes with myself and other uh, top poker players all the time. 3K, 6K, uh, 100K buy-ins, no big deal, 200K buy-ins, whatever. Um, he's also winning on Hended Mob and um, he's doing pretty well in poker, I, I understand. And in life, Philip Sternheimer, a.k.a. Mannheim. Is that your nickname, Mannheim? There, there, may, there are many nicknames, more than you probably have. But Mannheim really? is, is one of them, yes. Oh, what other nicknames are there? I, I did not know this at all. Well, you know, my, my mom always used to say that uh, a nice child has many nicknames. Um, there's German Phil um, in college that called me Euro Trash. Or they would oh, say yeah. your trash. Et e e go home, and uh, there's other ones that are that are not appropriate for the stream. The stream, but um, Mannheim is one of them. Yes, I like Euro Trash. I wish I had a nickname like Euro Trash. Yeah, I, but you have it. I mean, you have one of the best nicknames of all time, so you're not the one to complain. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm greedy with my nicknames. I, I like to have many names. We gave you a nickname called uh, Prince Philip in the high stakes cash games because you requested, for example, Diet Coke in a can and <laughs> pour it in the cup. Uh, I remember this specifically. I mean, this one. I mean, to be fair, I have Diet Coke in a can myself quite a lot. Uh, but I remember I thought I was really peculiar with my food, but this uh, I, I feel less odd about it myself. Um, I have many special requests, I will admit. All right. Well, yeah, I think it's funny. Tell us a little bit about what you do, because I don't think that a lot of the people in poker understand what private equity is, but I can draw a parallel between private equity and poker. Um, I know that you work for H&F, a very big company, and the private equity uh, scene. I don't know what it focuses on exactly, what sector, maybe multiple sectors. Why don't you explain a little bit about what you do? Uh, yeah, because it was took you quite a while to sort of describe it at the beginning. It's probably like someone who's trying to describe what you do in poker, so if you're not in it. Uh, so private equity, um, private meaning that mo the companies that we own are, are typically private, and they're, they're owned by, by us. That stands in contrast to public, which is a company that's listed in the stock market. And, and equity is, is considered, and an, it's part of the capital structure, and that most companies have equity, which is um, the people that own the company, uh, and then there's debt. And so typically when, when you have debt, you just have the rights to, to, to that kind of piece um, of funding, but you actually don't own the company, you don't run the company, so that's kind of public. Uh, you have equity and debt, and then you have public and private. So most companies we own, and most companies, when we own them, they are private and owned by us. 
typically together with management and sometimes you have other investors involved. Um, so the way we our business model works is that we raise money um, mostly from um, either sovereign nations that have to that invest uh, to meet their long dated obligations such as paying pensions and salaries. Uh, so that could be like the government of Singapore is a very big investor uh, in the space and with us or um, or it could be a pension fund. So like the uh, the state of California, for example, or it could be university endowments. Um, and there's, a, there's some high net worth individuals as well, but you're probably 90% of our investors fall into those categories, universal endowments, uh, states, or, or sovereign nations. Um, and then we ourselves are actually our biggest investor. So we, um, we care a lot about alignment of interest. And so one part of that is eating, eating your own cooking. So having your own capital at risk. Um, and so we raise funds typically with a sort of period over, over 10 years or 12 years. Uh, from those funds, we typically make investments into companies. Um, I would say on average 10 to 15 companies per fund um, where we typically make control investments. So we would, we would be the sole owner of the company. Um, and over a period of, call it, the average being six years, but it can be as short as one year at the extreme and as long as 15, uh, we would then own these companies and then ultimately sell them. And uh, from the, the profit, we would take uh, a certain share, um, which is typically 20%. Um, and that's effectively our, our business model. And okay. of course, that sort of really only works with the mechanics that you have is if, if the company performs a lot better at the time when you sell it relative when you bought it. So th there's, there's a lot of focus on what I would call company building, which is, is just making the company do things that it didn't do before operationally. And there's a lot of building on sort of uh, the company itself in terms of bringing in better management and sort of trying to drive what I would broadly call organizational excellence. So you might, you know, what's our, our strategy? Uh, what's our purpose in society um, or, as a, or as a corporation? Um, you know, how do you drive real accountability um, and how do you drive alignment of interest? And that's kind of a very big theme for us. So we, we typically make uh, managers, big shareholders as well. And we try to sort of bridge what is usually a very big gap in the, in the public sector when um, the shareholders actually aren't and, and the managers are sitting in sort of separate boats. And we actually try to create an environment where both management and us think and act like owners. And so um, we try to therefore make decisions that are in the long-term interest of the company. And that typically leads to, to better results than on average. Okay. Um, I more or less understand. I, it sounds like basically you cooperate with companies uh, and invest in ones that you think can, you can benefit and there's like, you can add some strategic value to or you loan them money or something like that. I still don't know which exact companies. I remember you saying something about uh, university loans, perhaps? Or am I just totally No, wrong? I mean, I think, uh, it, as you said, it we happen, so there's firms with different focuses. There are some private equity firms that are only focused on technology or software, for example, that are some that are focused only on, on consumer companies. Uh, we, we happen to invest across a variety of, of industry sectors. But within that, we have a focus on trying to buy, I would say, good or, or very good business franchises. So there's some that only do turnarounds. They buy sort of broken businesses, but they buy them relatively cheap. So we would look to buy good businesses and then try to make them even, even better.
and okay. it yeah. to operate on the larger end of, end of the scale in terms of the size of companies. So that's another differentiation. So private equity typically is more mature businesses. As you go further down sort of the, the, the younger company stage, you get into growth equity and at the very early end, you get into venture capital. Right. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of how to explain this to the poker audience, but it sounds like generally speaking, you prefer companies um, that have already succeeded and to make them better, which would be like investing in a good player and you and say, we're going to put you in this game and buy a share, or we're going to teach, teach a good player how to play PLO and, and like take a share, like kind of thing um, as a parallel for that. And something like venture capital would be, because I've done some venture uh, investing myself, but venture capital would be like staking or like, mm, would it be like staking? It would be like, um, I mean, it, it, the gamble of venture capital reminds me a lot of gambling in a tournament. Uh, if I'm really honest, it doesn't really remind me of staking. Staking is actually riskier, but um, maybe it would be more like staking for you because you'd be like, trying to help the company grow and that kind of thing and investing your time and resources. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, the tournament would be more akin to venture capital, just given the payoff profile and that you have a lot of times. So it's a riskier endeavor, uh, where you would, um, have a couple of, uh, you know, times when you lose your money, but then you have some moderate payouts and then you have once in a while a very a very big payout and so that's an in venture and in, in private equity where we have a, a much more concentrated portfolio of 10 15 bets um businesses that are more mature therefore more analyzable and also more stable and more established so we our business model relies on uh hitting some some singles and doubles uh, ideally not losing money ever um, and, and then having also a couple of home runs, but probably fewer than what you would have in, in venture capital. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's what I understand is that, uh, one thing that's different between what you do and in poker is it seems like most of the time you're, you're winning. Whereas if you're playing a cash game, I mean, you can be pretty certain that you're a favorite, but you don't win most of the time. You win about half the time. You could say something like that, like. Yeah, it will be similar over a longer, so our minimum investment, our typical investment period is sort of five to six years. So, and one of the big benefits that private equity has is that you, you can really pick your timing of, of exit uh, if, if you do everything right. So it'll be more like playing, backing a winning player, working with that winning player to become better, um, and then essentially deciding at which, playing sort of a five-year long cash game every day, and then deciding at what point uh, you, you decide you decide to exit, um, and yeah, you know, probably if you pick the right poker player with the right mentality and help them get better, and we're sort of like you know not maybe pick sort of the timing at the end of a, a downswing, for example, or when the multiples of what the market is willing to pay for that player happens to be sort of very out of favor, you would then essentially decide. You know, you shouldn't, if I, if I was to be backing you, Jungle, if I put you in the right games and, and we help improve some of your leaks in the game itself and mentally and whatnot, like, you should actually be winning, like, almost always over a five-year period, right? Yeah. And so it's, that's kind of really the, the, the probably better analogy. Okay, okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and, yeah, not winning over a five-year period is a little bit of a problem for playing poker. 
Um, there's a couple other sorts of comparisons I have in mind. I uh, would think, I mean, I think business is way more complicated uh, for all sorts of reasons, but it's always sort of gambling just because you can never really, you can always go into all these little details and look at all the comparables, um, other similar kinds of businesses, or you look at, if you could look at like people that have done similar things and whatever, but you have to like kind of at some point decide like how much of it's worth your time. And then it seems like, I mean, it, um, why don't, before I give my thoughts, I want to hear, are there any more kinds of comparisons you can think of how it works with poker? You mean between private equity and, and, and poker? Well, what you do, I mean, I also have a follow-up question of sorts, uh, because there is a major difference and uh, there's a couple major differences actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, at the, um, the similarities are that um, you're dealing in investing and in poker uh, with a lot of problem solving um, and you're dealing uh, with imperfect information. Um, and because you have imperfect information, um, you need to make use a lot of analysis, deductive reasoning and sort of employ, I would say, probabilistic thinking like we have, when we look at a business, we we sort of look, we have typically a base case, which is sort of the most likely case. But really then we think about what are the range of outcomes for the key bets that we're making. And a lot of times you have a downside case, you have a base case, you have an upside case. And so it, it's sort of similar to thinking about ranges and it's ultimately probabilistic because of course there are no certainties in life. And because you have imperfect information there is no kind of one one outcome that it, it's kind that um, that that you can really think about, um, and so that's kind of very very similar. Um, there's a couple of differences in that. Um, one is, you know, really if 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 you boil down investing, it, it does come down to kind of really game time decisions that you have around when we decide to invest money, when we decide to sell. And it also, when you work with a company, when it really comes down to, there's a couple of, there's a fewer key judgments that you need to get right. Like what's the right management? What are the, what, what are the sort of, the sort of two, three strategic priorities that are, if we get right, really sort of is there... move the dial. In poker, you have this sort of ongoing micro decisions that you have all, like all the time and you sort of can't run away from them. In business, there's a lot of stuff where if I don't feel like making a decision today, I can generally also make it tomorrow. And poker, like once you're sitting at the table, it's sort of right in front of you. Um, I do think then there's this, you also have like ultimately in, in investing, you have beta. So the stock market goes up effectively by 8% a year on average. I don't think poker, the you have, beta is usually. I, th I presume by beta, you mean like Basically, the stock market goes up. You're, you're probably going to go up too if you're invested in the business. Is that what you're Correct. saying? Correct. So we separate beta versus alpha. Alpha is essentially what we add on. You know, if alpha is positive on top of that, okay. while in poker, you know, the beta is negative effectively because the rake and all kinds of other factors are working against you. Um, What's interesting is that in poker, you have a much more visceral understanding between or direct understanding between the role of luck and skill. And I actually don't think it's different in business, but it, it, it gets obfuscated a lot more. I mean, I think people underappreciate the role of variance, the role of luck. 
uh, and what they can control or not control. Um, and I, I think that's, I, don't, I think it's no less true in life than it is in poker, but in poker, you have a very, you can actually determine the difference between expectation and, and sort of results. Um, and so what it's taught me for investing is that like focus on the quality of the decision and focus less on outcomes in the short term because you can control outcomes, but you can control quality of decisions. And I, I think poker teaches you that in, in sort of a very visceral way. I, I would say the last difference is that, especially in investing the type that we do, and when people say finance, it's such a big term, it's almost like games of chance and poker. Like you know, there's many different forms. In, in the form that we do that I just described, when we have sort of a very small basket of companies where we have a lot of our own money invested and management does as well, um, the, uh, the ability to work with people and to influence them to make the right decision is, you know, of paramount importance. Well, there's some overlap, of course, in terms of the study of the human mind and, you know, being able to spot deception and whatnot. But, you know, you don't really work in poker that way with with other people and certainly not, not with your opponents. And so that sort of human element, I think, is actually quite different in business than it is in, in the game of poker. Positively influence them. You mean you don't want to uh, you want to influence the people positively that you're working with. Is what you mean? Yeah, and you and you just influence them. I mean, influencing is sort of a, a very loaded word, but um, a lot of business is about driving alignment. Like, there's no point in saying you think the company needs to do A um, if if kind of you don't actually have alignment with. With, with, the, with the CEO, with the management team. So we, we face that problem a lot of times that we happen to have a point of view of something that needs to get done, but it's worthless if management doesn't really buy into it, right? And so I call that influencing ultimately. And right. it goes both ways. I mean, they, they influence us as much as we influence them. Sure, sure. I would, I would presume that like people in a way, this is one, well, I've got a couple questions. Uh, so first question, I'll get back to that one. Um, I would think that influencing people kind of works like poker in a way in that you don't really know what people are going to do, but you can still, you know, you can pick like the optimal strategy. You can, um, and you can like kind of assign a percentage to that. I mean, you can look at their history to some extent, uh, especially when you're hiring them. I would think that hiring them is kind of like the pre-flop of, or deciding who to hire is kind of like, or looking at the people is kind of like the pre-flop of, private equity or venture capital or whatever. And then like after that's like the post flop of how you talk to them and you know, do you say, do what you're going to say you're going to do? Do you show up for meetings on time? And all that's like uh, like post flop stuff. All that's like the stuff that, that uh, can matter a lot if you mess it up too much. Um, but like before that, like the actual people I presume are like the key components. Is this, does this make any kind of sense? I think I kind of like the analogy. I mean, I, I'm. I like the analogy. I mean, I, I, w I would say what, what I'm thinking a little bit is a pre-flop and flop and maybe even turn because I always think about investing and in that um, one, one thing is asset selection, which I think our firm is particularly good at, which is ultimately you're sort of a student of business and you sort of understand ultimately, um, well, Things like what's what's really your value proposition, um, and how, and how is it actually 
um, defendable over like over time? And what's what are the competitive dynamics in the industry that allow you to extract to monetize that, you know, or, or not? And so there's I think we're just actually quite good at that. And we're quite good at assigning value at it because, of course, we need to price our, our capital and think about risk. But once you own a company, I think the single most important decision, if I can only do one thing, is absolutely the management you put in place to run them, you know, and I, and I think it's, um, it's extraordinarily important. And it, this notion of a superman management team or CEO or superwoman doesn't exist. I think there's very few CEOs that would be exceptional in no matter which company or circumstance you put them in. I think it's generally horses for courses. So what is actually needed for that company, for that team at that point in time, relative to the strengths and weaknesses and experiences that that person has had? And so that, that's an extraordinarily important decision. Um, and getting that right, you know, um, there's, no, there's very few that will have a huge out, sort of impact on the outcome on, on the performance of the company. And so I think it's a great analogy. It might be pre-flop and flop at the same time, I would say. Uh, just because it's of such paramount importance. Okay, um, sounds like a couple things are going on here. So it sounds like, firstly, it sounds like the this business situation of sorts, the proposition of like whatever's going on in the sector or whatever seems to trump like the actual management team. And then after that, it's the management team. But within that, it's you pick the right management team. You don't pick like the guy who's got like the amazing credentials. And I could see that being like quite an easy trap because there's, yeah. um, I mean, you could hire like the Phil Ivy or whatever uh, and Bill Ivy will demand, will know his worth, right? And he'll be like, I'm worth a lot of money, I'm Phil Ivy, so you gotta pay up. And then you'll pay like a massive premium for a guy who, when you who's great at everything, but he's not like amazing when you need him for like short deck or I don't know, like Doogie or something like that. When what you should have actually done is hire some Badoogie specialist or the Badoogie team and some, I don't know, people with software or like something like that, and like hired them for way cheaper and ha and had them just like crush like this Badoogie spot. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. And um, you know, life is also is life is just a business. It's just very it's just very complex, um, and so. But it's it's I think it's an apt analogy, and uh, you know of course we, we try to get the business right and we try to get management right. You know we we have this philosophical debates: does management trump business or not? Right? Sort of like would you rather have a bad company with a great management team, or vice versa? And you know ideally we never face that problem. Like, um, and so I don't even want to want to opine on it. But our objective is to get is to get both right, and you almost think about them independently. <laughs> We'd rather, rather uh, succeed at everything. Um, well, uh, I would presume you would still have a bad management team for like crypto when it's go when it's booming, uh, than you would like a great management management team when crypto when it's going down. If that makes sense, because you, they can't exactly do anything when crypto is going down. That was my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and we we would just not. I think a key part we call the circle of competence, which is that. What is actually analyzable, and where and where can we add value? And so the reason why we as a fund wouldn't invest in crypto is because, a, I'm not sure we can add a lot of value. Of course, there's many business models centered around crypto, so maybe something like 
a Coinbase would be different because that's more like an exchange and whatnot. And so we've invested in exchanges. But like fundamentally, like we look at crypto and we just don't believe that we understand it well enough that it fits sort of the parameters that we put around investment, which is thou shall not lose money, for example. Um, and so that, that would just not be within our circle of competence, ultimately. Okay. It might be yeah, for other people, but it's not for us. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is it accurate to say? Is it accurate to say the business sector is kind of like the fundamentals of uh, real of um, private equity and venture capital? But that in private equity and and uh, uh, venture capital, like it's far broader. It's not like there's like one thing that works. It's like there's like just fundamentals of. Um, you can kind of select the zone in which you play the fundamentals. Like it's like you're selecting the game, I guess you could say. Whereas, like you know that you're not that good at a uh, triple draw, but you know you're really good at no limit. So you're like, all right, let's go into no limit. Or does that make sense? I think what I'm is probably answering the question a different way than what you thought. But this this notion of fundamental is is kind of helpful in that. So fundamental investing, there is very technical investing, for example, where. It's kind of like the you see people looking at screens and charts and what's not and like that like that's kind of, I think that's also what a lot of people are doing when they when when they when they when when they trade for example crypto or its variants uh, and and that's one way to make money I I personally do not profess to understand it when we say fundamental is like sort of really comes down to like basic questions like you know is this business actually have a superior value proposition to the customer that will make them come back to it, that will allow them to charge more than the next oh, guy. That, that's what I mean by fundamental, yeah, yeah. ultimately. And oh, so private equity is at the mature, bigger companies, mature end of the spectrum. They typically have been around for a long time. They're proven to a certain extent they're more analyzable. What we also do, we use leverage to fund our purchases. So we put a lot of our own money in, but we also borrow. So borrowing when you invest amplifies the return both ways. So it means like if you do well, you make even more. If it's not going well, you get wiped out faster. And so inherently, you should be only using leverage if you are looking at things that are somewhat more stable and somewhat more analyzable. Because of course, if things weren't to go well, um, you know, then leverage is very bad. And so the reason why you know, you might invest in something like crypto that will be much more apt to venture capital where you typically wouldn't use leverage because it's so volatile. And when, when things are volatile, you don't want leverage. And so certainly I think we can all agree that crypto where you can have price swings of a couple of months of minus 50%, like it's not a good asset class to put leverage, to, to borrow money against or to put leverage on. Okay, uh, this sounds more like trading. I didn't think that that was like, your main focus in this kind of no, thing. It, it, is, it, is, it is not, right? I mean, trading also, think about what your whole period for something that you trade is typically not five years, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. It looks like you more look, look for like solid fundamentals and long-term investing and like, uh, I mean, it, yeah, it sounds like you're looking for things that actually add value overall to people and try to get them while they're low or that sort of thing and, and help them become better products or put out better products that sort of thing is, it sounds roughly right. I don't know 100% know what I'm talking about, but um, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of You're getting it right. All right, all right, cool. That's good to know. Um, I have to ask, 
do you like working more in finance or do you like poker more? Would you rather become like a poker player uh, if you had the choice of like, uh, I mean, you wouldn't make as much. I can promise that um, in comparison to whatever you're making in finance. Finance is way bigger than poker. Uh, but it sounds, in a way, it sounds way more interesting um, depending on what you're doing. Well, there's a certain um, aspect of grass is greener, of course. And so I've never played poker for a living like you and many others have. So do I currently have more fun playing poker than being at work? I think probably, yeah. Um, does that mean, therefore, that playing poker for a living is more fun than what I do? Like, I don't, I don't know, right? So that's kind of maybe... Um, so I think it's difficult for me to really um, realistically compare the two. I think the problem with poker, and I'd be curious how you think about it, uh, Dan, is that, um, you know, first of all, I love kind of the team aspect of private equity and the, the community that we have at work. I mean, really, I have lifelong friendships would be an understatement. Um, in terms that I made at work. And I think I've grown a lot as a person. I, I spend more time at work than I do with my friends and my family, right? So I think that's kind of a huge choice. Um, and I really like the team aspect around it. You know, the, the thing with poker is that, you know, other than some form of study groups that you have, uh, it, it's pretty lonely sport, right? Sort of, in fact, not just that, but you're also out to get out of people's money. Um, um, and then... I don't know, there's just something around you know, the zero sumness of it, right? Where, um, you know, if you even leave the rake aside, it, it is sort of a bit of a zero sum activity. And so if I was to do it for a living, I'd be ask my, asking myself in terms of how could I create purpose other than just being a great poker player and, and winning and whatnot. Um, and so that's kind of what I struggle with in poker sometimes. What I love is, is, the, is the camaraderie I love competition, of course, and I love the game. And I love the camaraderie that you have when you sit at a poker table uh, with people that are interesting and there's banter and you're competing, but you're also competing and you know that maybe today I win and tomorrow you win. Um, and we can actually both both win, you know, maybe not against each other, but against others. And so I just love that camaraderie. Um, but at the heart, it is pretty much a solo sport still, right? And then at the heart, yeah. it is a zero-sum game unless you build something on top of it. Well, that's kind of what I've been struggling with in a way. That's also what's been interesting for me in investigating, you know, realms like business uh, and that sort of thing is like, how do I like find purpose here? Because it did effectively reduce to a rat race to me. I was actually thinking of this today is like, what is a rat race exactly? If I looked at it only in terms of money, then it reduced effectively to a rat race um and if i like uh yeah i mean the, the, finding purpose in it has been a bit tricky but that's we'll, we'll discuss that later uh just because that's a whole nother uh barnyard or what's the word uh it's a whole nother thing i actually was going to ask you um because i wasn't sure uh and um first i'd like to state that I mean, I think that the whole fact that intrinsically business is like a group working together and poker is more like dog eat dog and it just has to be that at least the financial aspect has to be less than zero sum at some point, um, even though it doesn't exactly work out that way. Uh, 
within like various circles. I mean, it's still there's still lots of like there's still many points in which it has to, as you said, be less than zero sum. Um, but I think that's the whole reason why, in terms of money, poker reduces as is a reduct. What's it called? A reducting um, economy versus uh, business, where which is like constantly going up. There's like it's becoming, it keeps scaling essentially. Um, all well, business on the whole, you can say, or like technology on the whole keeps scaling because it is more a process of people working together. I think it's really that main factor is really what uh, what uh, drives those two things. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, business is such a big term, uh, jungle, in terms of hard to sort of make hard to make a sort of overly generalized statement based on that. Um, I think there's forms of business that are also zero sum and that don't add a lot of value to society. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, like stealing, like you know, like hacking people. Yeah, but even like trading in a way. I mean, look, I think that people that work in trading the value out of society is around, you know, establishing a market for something and uh, where there have to be winners and losers and you provide liquidity uh, such that you, people can sell and buy. And so there's a role of markets, of course, that, you know, we all benefit from, including myself, but that's not particularly sort of, that's quite zero sum, right? Um, yeah. Well, the way I try to think about what we do is, um, you know, one is that, really sort of do what's right for the business in the long term and try to bridge this sort of gap that exists when some random hedge fund invests in something and then management doesn't actually own a lot of the company. They just kind of, they just essentially get, they get to do make money whether they're good or not, which is what I really hate. You know, when someone gets fired a lot of times, like even when they did a crap job, they get paid like a big kind of, bon- a big kind of like goodbye so bonus. Stupid. And so we, we try to sort of have more of a system where, you know, you do, if we do well, if the company does well, we all do well. Um, and we, we should just act and think like owners and do what's best for the business, right? And so to me, that that's a very purist um, sort of motivating force. And um, behind that, you know, when we do well, you know, our beneficiaries are, you know, pension, someone's, someone's pension gets paid or some teacher's salary. And so... I find that a bit more motivating. And there's a reason why, there's a much longer discussion why I would suggest we don't go in there. But if you look at the number of publicly traded companies out there, it's been shrinking a lot. And if you look at the company number of companies under private equity ownership, it's been growing a lot. And there's many reasons for that. One of them is that I think as a form of governance, so think about in terms of oversight of companies, the private equity model, I think is actually much superior to what is found a lot of times with companies that are traded in the stock market. And so, but the term business itself is just very broad. And so I think there's some business which I think has gotten rightfully a really bad rep also in broader society when when it comes to distrust in corporations and business. Uh, and there's some that I think is just incredibly value adding. And you're right in that, that's what I call beta before. Fundamentally, economies grow and the stock markets grow and sort of almost without doing anything Businesses on average tend to grow, um, and that's kind of a that's of course a very positive externality that you don't have in, in poker. Yeah, yeah, 
but I feel like it's a force of nature, essentially. Uh, I feel like it goes even beyond... Um, yeah, I mean, not all businesses work that way, but, like, businesses that actually provide uh, for society and that sort of thing, that are actually putting up products and services and that stuff. Um, that stuff. Hmm? I'm just uh, teasing you. I was going to ask, uh, do you like working with people a lot because I remember it seemed like it, it looked like a little bit of a mixed bag and I can see uh, I mean I've had a bit of experience you know running a charity foundation and running this podcast actually is sort of like running a small company but uh, I think I've got a lot to learn um, there's some similarities to it yeah that's a big question I mean um, the reality is it, it depends right and so and I think that's why it's a good question to ask yourself. Um, in my job, I get to work with people. Um, you know, the people at my firm is, of course, that's the employer that I pick. And, you know, I've chosen to stay there for 16 years so far. Um, they are sort of of the, the highest kind of level in terms of intelligence, integrity, decency i would say right and so i got a lot of um i got a lot of energy from that then we work with management teams and there you have when you buy a company uh with an existing management team of course you don't get to pick every single one of them and 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 there you get the whole range of sort of people and um i get pretty bummed out sometimes like when people don't um behave with decency or integrity, um, that kind of gets me really upset. Um, I would say I sometimes also have limited patience for people that just aren't capable, and that's not a great quality to have. Um, but I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, have high standards for myself and for others. And so this is kind of where you then, and look, some of those people then, like the ones that aren't decent, like they're not, they're not going to stay in the company for very long. But maybe they'll be there for some period of time before you maybe change them. Um, but that's hard. So sometimes you work with people that, you know, you probably, they wouldn't be your friends, but you still actually try to make the best of it. And so uh, it can be, um, I've definitely come home a couple of times and been very sort of sad or demotivated because I was working with people that were behaving in a way that, you know, that I probably wouldn't, or I, I wish they hadn't behaved that way. And so I guess the advice I would just give um, when it comes to that is, this is, of course, life, and um, there's no... And by the way, what I think of behavior, it's also sometimes very subjective, so it's not like they're bad people. I just happen to not click with them. But, I, you know, this whole notion around who you surround yourself with as part of work, um, that's, of course, something that you can, you can actually have... You can make decisions about, right, in terms of which profession you want to be in. Um, and what I would just recommend is that, like, my, my reflection is that we're, we're much more products of our environment than we maybe admit to ourselves. We live sort of in a very individualistic society where sort of the role of self is sort of very strong and we are who we are. But I don't think that's the way it works. I think we are very much products of our environment. Oh, for sure. We're first of all products of our parents. Like, that sort of determines who we are to a great extent. And then we are... Who we, who we surround ourselves with. And so that, that those are things that we can make choices about. Uh, and it starts with the insight, actually, of understanding what do you react positively 
um, too, and what actually tends to bring out worse things in you, and being thoughtful around, therefore, how you make those decisions, um, I think can actually lead to a much higher quality, much higher quality life. Oh, for sure. No, I mean, that's, like, that's, who you pick uh, to be around is one of the most important decisions to make, because it's just, like, uh, these, it's really hard to, like, willpower itself, there's all sorts of studies on this, willpower itself is not that powerful. Um, in comparison to environment, I mean, you also like there's also there's some kind of psychological term for structuring your environment your environment in a way that uh, aligns with what you want to do with your willpower. Like you don't want to have like a lot of junk food around you when you're. I mean, it's the same thing, really. You don't want to have a lot of junk food around you when you're trying to like cut weight or or eat healthy. Um, it's all the same. I uh, want to ask two kind of related questions. Firstly, poker. Would you pick? The poker players to hang out with or the business people and secondly um they're they're not 100 percent the same question but secondly do you think that the job that people do conditions their personality and their their character a lot mm. um I think uh, I think that's a really tough. The first one's really interesting. I think I um, it's hard to answer. The answer is I, I hang out a lot with both. But uh, and by the way, a lot of poker players I'm friends with are sort of a little bit trying to get more into business or or actually do do a little bit like what what I do, um, maybe more or less professional in poker or not. Um, I have a lot more heterogeneity in poker. I would say the friends that I have in business tend to be more certain types of personalities and backgrounds, while in poker, there's a much broader slate of people. You have your own category, Jungle, for example. Well, but, um, I'm, the, I'm the Spice Festival. You, you are definitely the Spice Festival. And, it, um, and so I just like to have both. What I like about poker is that I get a lot more diversity um, of, of anything, age, experience, um, personality than I than I typically have in business right and so I like that spice in, in my life but so I, I'm hopefully I wouldn't have to pick sort of either or and hopefully it's it's just and okay well you didn't really answer my question uh well I guess it, you kind of did it was like different categories but I think like business people like never miss meetings and are really reliable and uh I don't know they're not really all over the place too much oh excuse me like, I just happen to be by shaking my chair. Um, that's my guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm really curious because well, you didn't answer the second question, which is, does it shape someone's character? Because I'm not sure if it does. And I, I, I try to look at studies a little bit. Um, I have my own thoughts, but I want to hear what your opinion is. Because I, I would just think, like, especially poker probably filters out a lot of people or like, there's not so many people whose personalities can really like handle it uh, and I think that's true for certain financial things and I don't know um, yeah like you have to be a certain way when you're in these jobs like you have to like show yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, I think that's there's a lot of it is just going to be selection bias. So people, certain types of people gravitate to a certain career as opposed to they become a certain way because they're in the career. That's oh, probably yeah. 
the bigger factor. But look, I do think that um, it definitely changes your changes your character. The question is to what extent. So I'm I am a fairly pressure prompted, slightly more disorganized person by nature. Like I've done personality studies when I started to go into business 20 years ago, and then I did the same one again, and you know it changed in ways that I sort of expected. So by nature of my job. Um, I needed to come become a lot more organized in planning. And yeah. so I never used to be that way, but like that, and that has definitely now spilled over into some of my personal life. Like I was sending out a message before to a, to a poker chat group about a tournament in February. And I remarked afterwards, I'm probably the only person on that, in that chat that plans ahead to February, let alone 48 hours. And so that's become that's a little bit of the factor of my work where I need to plan for myself because my and my schedule impacts other people's schedules and you need to align that and so uh, in, in that way I do think it changes you. I wonder if it sort of more fundamentally changes like your characters. That's sort of a big word. Um, I imagine it does. Um, it's, it's kind of it's, your character uh, if you're organized. Like I, I also had the same thing. I had to. I'm not an organized person by nature, but I have to be. I had to create some systems to become more, more organized and also just straight up become more organized, frankly, and, you know, like schedule my calls in advance and put things in a calendar, all this stuff. <laughs> Many poker players don't have calendars. I was uh, thinking an interesting experiment, but it'd probably be a little bit of a nightmare would be if we like switched roles and <laughs> you would have to, I think you would do, you, I don't I don't know. I don't know what you think. I think you would think that you do, would do better than I would do in your business, is my guess. Uh, I think you'd be like, have a little bit of a heart attack if uh, I said, like, show up to work and do your job for the day. Is that right? Well, it's a little bit unfair, right? Because I, I, I have a lot more, if you're a professional as poker, a lot more experience in poker than you do in mine. So it's a bit, it's an unfair comparison. But I'm not sure what else you got going on in your life, Jungle. So who knows? Well, I've uh, I have some experience hiring and, and firing uh, for my charity foundation. I have some experience like running. Uh, we didn't. I wouldn't say I'm like great at it. There's definitely some things that I'm really not great at, and you know, it's quite complicated. But like as I've said, this podcast is is basically like running a small business. Uh, you know, I have to look at the make sure I pay people right, make sure. I treat people right, hire the right people, hire consultants, you know, get together like a plan for how to develop this thing, stuff like that. Um, so it's been a cute little detour. Um, what made you uh, choose finance? Um, I wish I could give you an answer like that was some kind of uh, big career plan in place. But I, at the time, didn't really know what private equity was. Um, I noticed that I was working at a consulting firm and I noticed that the smartest people were leaving to join private equity firms. And then I decided to sign up for some interviews as well. And I did really poorly uh, and didn't get any job offer the first time. And then I spent more time understanding what it was um, and decided that it actually was really interesting because I didn't actually know anything in the beginning. And then I interviewed the next year and then uh, ended up getting a couple of job offers. But there wasn't a big 
there wasn't a big career plan, and I, I had no, I wasn't a person that sort of read the Wall Street Journal when I was young, or had kind of a lot of interest in, in investing or, or whatnot. I um, literally happened, I would say, semi serendipitously. Oh, okay. Um, well, how did you get into mixed games? Uh, this, the mixed games are kind of tough, just because it's, you know there's eleven games you have to play. Well, it's pretty hard to do that. What uh, how did you get? Well, how did you get into poker and then mixed games? Like, was there like some kind of process there? Did you look at all of us and think, man, these guys must be pretty stupid, or they don't look too smart? This jungle guy, <laughs> who knows about him? That was a big part of it. Yeah. Um... I think poker was probably like sort of everyone I was, uh, I played a little bit in college and then I, I what really accelerated for me is I, I lived in Vegas for six months in 04, which was sort of the height of the, the poker. When, when I, I remember when I set foot into Bellagio in May 04 was Andy Beal was playing um, Chip Reese and Ted Forrest in the upstairs, not even in Bobby's, it was the upstairs area uh, at the in the high limit area of the Bellagio and just you know it was just packed and bustling and like Vegas was just crazy at the time because everyone was like in real estate making crazy amounts of money and whatnot so I sort of started playing No Limit um, for most of the time until um, 2013 essentially I think uh, I was playing the, uh, the 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 100k one drop in Vegas. Um, and I busted like late on day two and I was super tilted as you can imagine. Um, and then I literally just signed up for the next tournament that was available, which was a 10 game tournament. And I, I final tabled that having not played, I think four to 10 games before. Um, and sort of that a little bit sort of gave me the taste for it. I, I then didn't suddenly just only play mixed games after that, but I sort of, played more mixed game tournaments. I actually didn't play cash. Um, I did a little bit of studying, um, which at the time consisted mostly reading of books because there, there weren't many materials out there of any kind. Um, and then somehow ended up playing pretty high stakes um, early, I think, 18, and then ran that up and had sort of enough for one buy-in in the big game in Bobby's. And then had a very successful summer and then sort of never looked back. And of course, I was a lot worse back then than I realized at the time, which shows you about the variance in poker. But I also think that, you know, it's um, for people that only played No Limit before, you, you probably would curious how you thought about it, but there is a lot. Um, it's just very portable in terms of your card sense and your ability to understand one game that sort of translates into asking the right questions for the next game. And so I do think your learning path is very accelerated if you're good at one game before and then switch to, to mixed games. And I just think it's just a lot more fun. I mean, I think that I like the stimulation in terms of different muscles that are being sort of tapped into. I like the fact that the games are less solved, which I think makes it easier to compete at the elite level. I mean, I think that for me to compete at the elite level in, in No Limit is, is very different than it is in like playing 11 games like we do in, in our game at, in Bobby's. And I think that's because some of the games are generally, there's less interest in them, there's less, they're less solved, and I think that makes it easier to sort of get up the curve on a relative basis. But I'm curious how you think about it. 
no, I just think true. it's more fun. Like there's less tanking and there's more camaraderie. Like I don't know. It's just like the whole vibe in mixed games. I think it's just more fun than there is in, in, in No Limit. No, I think so too. Uh, I mean, No Limit's fun when you're playing against people that aren't, you know, by the book, like super by the book and doing all sorts of unusual things uh, for more than one reason. But um, yeah, I mean, the tanking is so brutal and like, it's very hard to master all 11 games. So it makes there more of a game. I mean, basically the more, the more of uh, the potential for skill to be in something, the more of a game there actually is. The more uh, potential for uh, beta, you could say. Um, this, that's pretty much how it works. And yeah, I totally agree. It's a, it is a lot more fun. Uh, it's just really complicated, which is the only unfortunate downside. No Limit was a very good game until Solvers came out. Uh, one of these weird downsides of solvers, but it was an opportunity to be capitalized in. And they could draw a pair of, um, in my mind, there's this, uh, this is why, I mean, a bit of a par parallel, so this is how reality works the way it is, because otherwise it would be interesting. Uh, so, so, but I'm curious on mixed games, like, so you prefer mixed games to, to, to No Limit? I, um, I do if I'm playing against all the robots. But to be fair, if I'm playing against all the robots, I can become sort of like the adversary of sorts. I can, that's, uh, I know how to, well, I kind of know what they're, the robots do robotic things a lot of time. It depends on which robots. Some robots are, you know, certain people like Chidwick, he may be like the T-1000, and then there's all, you know, the rusty uh, old-fashioned ones. You might see an iRobot I that, uh, they're a little bit different to handle, but they're still really boring is the problem. Like, they don't do a whole lot. They just do the same thing over and over. Uh, but mixed games are definitely more fun. A lot faster, shorthanded, uh, good stuff. Uh, I want to ask one more investment question. I've got a couple other ideas before I forget. Uh, what kind of investment advice would you give to people? Um, well, you know, I think it needs to be pretty sort of at a pretty high level because of course as with anything in life it sort of really depends on what you want to achieve and what's your financial situation like and how good are you actually at investing but um i would say um the if you're a poker player this probably applies to anyone but in particular to poker player um you should avoid like a plague um Anything that's really illiquid, uh, anything anything that is really illiquid, so it means you can't, if you decide to sell tomorrow, you can't sell it unless you take a huge discount. Um, yeah, I made that one. I made that mistake a few times. Um, avoid things that are essentially, even though I, I know people feel very gambly, the, re the reality is you have a lot of variance already in your main job and in, in investing you probably i mean again it depends on what you want you generally shouldn't want variance and don't invest your money in things you don't really understand now you look at this company and they sell this product that you happen to get that's not actually understanding the business um and so it's it's sort of a little bit like just because you play poker in a home game that doesn't know you actually know how to play poker and so, so generally speaking, you, you probably don't understand how the business works, not, not at a level that is, 
at which you should actually be investing money into it. And so the worst thing that can happen in a way is some guy comes to you and like, hey, I'm raising money for this thing. And you're like, oh, I know this product where you look into it, it looks like really cool. Um, that's probably the worst thing that you can do because it's probably has super high volatility and high headline risk. You have adverse selection because most businesses don't fund themselves by going to poker players. Like they, they actually have other investor bases. Um, meaning that you know they probably aren't able to get money there, so that's why they come to you. And then the worst thing is it's like really illiquid, and that you, money might be trapped for you know three, five, ten years, and you certainly don't control the liquidity event. And so I've seen poker players put a lot of money into that bucket, um, which should really, if you think about your portfolio of your net worth or your, or your liquid assets or total assets, that should really be a tiny sliver only. But yet, I've seen people put in like 50% of their money into that. Um, so that's probably the single biggest thing that you should avoid. You know, keep it liquid. Uh, don't even like security select. Don't even pick, I know, Tesla. Uh, the best thing you can do is sort of buy some version of an index or the market, which you know, can be just the Dow Jones or the S&P or even like, even some industry sector, but just don't, don't, there's no reason to individually security select. Uh, in fact, just try to keep, keep fees low because if like some, some funds, like a mutual fund can have like an expense ratio of one and a half percent and like you can get the same thing for 0.3%. Um, and then I would just generally just try to sort of diversify. Like um, you, you can have crypto, you can have equities, you can have real estate. Um, but you know, if I would try, I would try to diversify, and I would definitely try to stay away from the liquid stuff. And of course, real estate falls into that. So if you want real estate because you want to live somewhere, fine. But I think that's sort of like your mortal enemy as a poker player is to have money trapped in something that if you needed to access it, you can't get it. Yeah, that all seems like great advice, especially from my experience of making a lot of the mistakes that you just mentioned. Uh, yeah, I made a. I mean, uh, one thing that I've noticed is that everyone thinks they've got the best idea and everyone thinks they're the greatest. And at some point, I just started like, well, I mean, I can't tell them that everyone says this. Well, I guess I can. I can say it on the podcast. Um, I mean, I want to believe in people, but at the same time, everyone says this. And it's just really hard to, like, know the real answer. And one funny thing that I noticed is that no one ever really like compares it in comparison to all the other previous attempts or anything like that when they pitch these sorts of things, which I find to be really strange because that's what really matters is like, how does what they're doing stack up in comparison to the big picture? And then often a lot of ideas that have already been thought of, or there's just like a small change in it. And, and there's just a lot of things that can go wrong. I, I it's find. just super hard. I mean, the reality is I spent 80, 18 years of my life kind of doing it. And um, one thing is that for every investment that we make as a firm, and I don't make a lot of investments personally, like I, I probably turned down 100 just to give you maybe more. Whoa. And I think that's one thing to understand what makes for good business. And that's hard. Then it's like, how do you actually value it? Like that's, that's another real skill. And like you got to be realistic that like – unless you spend a fair bit of time doing it, you, you, you really just don't know. And so if you don't know, then go to an asset that is by nature sort of fairly priced. So, you know, if you, if you invest in the stock market, you know, that's a function of supply and demand of millions and millions of people. So you don't actually have to worry in a way 
is it fairly priced or not, which no one really knows, but it's sort of the best, it's, it's the best approximation like at the time, right? And so you don't have to, and you don't have to worry about picking a good business because you just pick a basket of various businesses, right? And so, and it's, you know, you're not getting, you're not getting like, you know, it's, it's a, you don't have, there's all kinds of other risks that you take in by investing like fraud and counterparty risk and God knows what, like, you know, you don't have that if you buy it. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a very meaningful risk. And so, you know, and you don't really have the time or more likely the skill to assess that. So just, just keep it simple and just buy something that's available and you know it's at a fair price at that point in time and, you, and the fees, fees are low and you can sell it the next day if you want to. And you have an average return expectations of 8%. And then, again, you can choose things according to your risk profile. You can buy a fixed income and it guarantees you to pay 4% right now because of inflation, but you're very certain to make that return. Well, of course, in, in the stock market, it can go up 20, but it can also go down 15, right? But on average, it produces 8% a year. Yeah, yeah. It's um, definitely, I think, um, I mean, I can't really speak for everyone, but I do think that, and I can't even speak for myself, actually. I have a different a little bit slightly different view of things in a way of how to, of, I mean, for maximizing money, I mean, for sure, uh, keeping it really basic seems right. I'm surprised you don't mention REITs, uh, real estate. What are they called? Like real estate investment, um, investment trust. Yeah. Yeah. I, thought those I think it's, um, could, can be, it's a good way to gain exposure to real estate as an asset class, probably better than buying, real estate per se, because it's, it's liquid at least, and it can yeah. be tax advantage. So, you know, there's many different products out there that can cater to your, you know, investment appetite and risk profile that are available in the market. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, I read a book, um, that kind of says what you're saying, uh, called the four pillars of investing. It's a short book, but it, basically keeps it really simple and I've heard unconventional success is really good too. Um, and yeah, not to too much, invest too much in private equity like I ended up doing, but I had a little bit of a different goal in that I personally don't view like the difference between being like having a net worth of 5 million or 10 million to be that different. Like I don't really see what the difference is, frankly, like what the, like, or even like five to 20. Uh, what I personally wanted to do was either like become very rich uh, or still be pretty rich, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like for me, uh, it was much more exciting. And also I could do a lot more if I, I, uh, had like a, an enormous, uh, income. So I like gambled a bit more on the whole and also gambled a bit more of my time looking for ways to scale. Yeah. Uh, and so my, I think that, I mean, this is my like, uh, fishy justification for investing in like private equity and like doing a bunch of unconventional things, but maybe it makes sense. I mean, it makes yeah. some sense at least. Um, what's your professional? Let me guess, you're still, you're still fairly rich, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I still want to like, you know, secure the, uh, the downside, um, yeah. secure like the worst case scenario kind of thing. Um, make sure I never actually lose all my money. Uh, don't want to do that. That's, that's no good. But, uh, Try to go for the home runs. You know what I mean? Uh, what's your professional opinion on my ideas? No, I think that's actually, you know, that's, if that's your risk profile, I think that's a, that's a very legitimate strategy. I think um, we can chat offline to what extent you've, 
you've chosen the best way to implement that strategy. But I think there's nothing wrong with the strategy at all. Yeah, I've, uh, I don't know about the way that I've implemented it. I'm not the best at some things, but whatever, you know, um, it's been, life's a little bit more complicated than that as it turns out. Uh, you know, people don't pay you when you think for sure they'll pay you. And actually yeah. sometimes people pay you when you don't think they'll pay you. Sometimes, uh, you get cheated and they pay you back and just weird yeah. stuff happens. Uh, yeah. I want to ask, uh, speaking of weird stuff, uh, you've gone to Burning Man. Seems like, I guess that fits your personality. What's your, uh, uh, what, what's, what interests you about that? Is it just, um, yeah, tell us about that. Well, it's interesting in that most people uh, are very surprised that I go. So I'm not sure this, I think it fits my and my wife's personality, but you know, we have friends that are very surprised that we go. Uh, for example, because we don't do drugs, um, but you don't have to if you go to Burning Man. That's kind of one of the many misconceptions. Um, you know, a, have, have you been to Burning Man? No, I want to go, but not for the reasons that are typical. And I still think that, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I want to go, but not for, uh, not for like, I want to go actually related to like the, the whole idea of like restructuring society kind of thing and just the, the mm. whole experience of like, and also I'm just curious. There's all sorts of crazy stuff that happens there. Part of it is just sheer yeah. curiosity, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah you, should, you, should, you should definitely go. Um, I sort of put people in three camps, which is you go and you say, I wish I hadn't gone and maybe you even leave earlier than when you planned. Then you have a lot of people that go and they say, look, I'm glad I went, but I'm probably not going to go back. And then there's people that say, let's sort of go back every year. And sort of my wife and I are somewhere between the, the third and the second bucket. And that sort of every year we say it's probably the last year that we go, but then we've been going for the last five years. Uh, but we're not sort of hardcore burners in, in, in that definition that... Um, the amount of people that are in the first book is actually very surprisingly low, uh, but it does exist. So, and I, I think that uh, what is actually, so it's, it's, there's a running joke. It's very difficult to describe Burning Man to people that haven't been. Um, so um, it's, I'm, I'm probably, I'm going to, I'm going to probably do an awful job sort of describing it. But what, what we like about it, um, is or what, what I like the most about it is that it is actually a sort of a bit of a utopian experiment and that there's a lot of people semi-like-minded that build a makeshift city in the middle of the desert that lives by sort of certain principles um, such as radical self-reliance, such as radical inclusion, accepting people that already are, such as leave no trace, which is clean up after your trash, clean up after yourself. And, Isn't that still self reliance? Yeah, it's. I mean, they're 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 also connected, but meaning like you need to be able to look after yourself. Um, but then it's also about radical inclusion, and it's it's also fundamentally it's a gifting festival, and so there's no commerce. Um, everything you either bring to look after yourself, but then also people. Everyone has a gift to the broader society. And so it's actually both. It's both a radical self-reliance, uh, but it's also very much about taking care of other people. 
And so uh, it's sort of a, therefore a bit of a utopian experiment and I, it works incredibly well for a week. You know, I sometimes ask myself how long it would take for that whole thing to break down. But for a week, I think it's sort of humanity at its, mankind at its best. And a lot of it is, is because of positive social pressure. So imagine you come into a situation, like you come into a group of people and everyone is like, everyone picks up the trash. Everyone is like really, really kind to you. No one actually treats you differently depending on how you look or where you're from or how rich or how poor you are. And you would probably sort of blend into that. And that's what I call sort of positive social pressure. And so I kind of really like what it does to me. And I think I like really what it does to human interaction. So my favorite part about Burning Man is that, first of all, you get to meet great people. I met a lot of really interesting people uh, every year, including this year. And then it allows you to connect with people at a much deeper and faster level than you sort of ever would in everyday life. And it's really a different, and why is an interesting question. I think it's a lot of it is because you're in this crazy environment, like you're off the grid, you're surrounded sort of by art and nature and craziness. You don't have your cell, your cell phone doesn't work. And I think it makes those people a lot more vulnerable and open. So for example, I was sitting like, I, I was, I had a, I was sitting like having, eating, having lunch with a guy that I knew casually. And we suddenly start talking about life and we t I talk about my, like my daughters and he was talking about how him and his wife were having a hard time and how they struggled to have a kid. And then he just suddenly broke down crying. And like he told me kind of all these things that he probably, I don't think ever admitted to someone else. Maybe he didn't even admit to himself in terms of how was, how he's sabotaging himself and how he wished he was a different husband. And like, it was just beautiful. And I started crying as well. And so it's just human connection, like at its, at its purest. And it's like one of my favorite moments, like over the last couple of years, just because of the human connection. And cause I could, I could relate and I could see how it was liberating for him to talk about it. Um, and so that's just beautiful. And I, there's all kinds of factors in everyday life. We're too busy. We're too scared to admit weakness that prevent us from connecting that way. That's why I go to Burning Man because the likelihood that you have these moments of small and big connections are just so much greater. Now you have to endure a lot of stuff that I really like, I don't do drugs and like it's hot and it's dusty and it's a pain to get to. And it's, the toilets just fucking give me like are just awful. Like there's all kinds of adversity that you have to endure. Uh, it's probably part of it. Like you probably can't have one without the other. But you know, so for us the equation has been there's enough we get out of it that it's worth making the investment. Which for us also includes it's the only week in a year when we leave our, our leave our kids. One night or the two of us is with our kids and we leave them with my sister-in-law. And so it's a big investment, you know. Uh, but it is definitely worth making at least once and see, see if it's for you. Um, I definitely want to check it out. I think there's a lot of value to having the right kinds of deep connections with the right kinds of people, which it, it sounds like close to what I want to do. Um, I realized it wasn't 100%. And I personally suspect it's not really perfect. But like, who am I really to say? It's just something that I happen to think about a lot just because I think there's like really, I mean, there's just some big topics here. Um, I mean, for one thing, like, the reason, at least, 
today, like, it can't be the case that people can just go on, you know, just spout all their, their story. It has to be really tactical. Um, because if you say the wrong thing, and I've made this mistake plenty of times, people can, like, if you just say it even in a way that um, is fairly innocent in actuality, or if you just, like... There's a lot of ways to shoot yourself in the foot, especially if you're a guy. I mean, if you're a girl too, but it's the, the risk payoffs are a little bit different because if you're a girl, like you could be like branded a slut or something like that, which can be quite bad. Um, but if you're a guy and you make yourself look like you're emotionally weak, uh, I mean, there's like quite a lot at stake if you uh, portray yourself in the wrong way. Um, especially when it comes to like dealing with women because like you have to like basically prove yourself um so i mean definitely judgment is a big problem in today's world like in burning man like i don't really understand what stops people from like taking advantage in some kind of way if that makes sense uh, even if not explicitly like there are ways of being a bad person that don't necessarily um mean you have uh, bad intentions but you can be like a narcissist in a conversation for example is a really simple example but like someone uh could really get off each cheap and burning man by like barely doing anything on uh, just like be like kind of a leech on society um, yeah. or they get straight up steel and i don't really understand what the barrier to that is in burning man um, well the, the reality is it's well, it is very an interesting human experiment in that i've seen very very little I mean, literally shockingly little behavior that I would consider to be in any way admonishable, like free rider or being stealing, lying, being being a like even just like hitting on women. So there's also this. It's like I don't think I've seen someone like hit on my wife in five years. It's just not that environment. It's really interesting and like. Um, I, I do think that, of course, there's mechanisms to discourage that, which is that if someone was in a in a camp and they would have behavior in that you and I, and certainly on a repeated basis, they just wouldn't be invited back. Well, yeah, they would that's probably the... actually be ostracized in a way. And so it's that is what I call sort of positive context matters, right? We are different depending on context. And so um, you behave differently in this, like at the poker table sometimes than you do in this chat and different than where, how you probably do at Burning Man. And so Burning Man brings out, I think, at least over this sort of week long period, it brings out the best in people. I think if you let the experiment run for several months, I think it'll, it, I, I don't think it'll actually work even though it's one, the exactly the same people. And so, um, but it is really interesting. I mean, I'm not surprised by it. I'm surprised about the extent that, you know, I see a very large group of people, 70,000, over a moderately extended period of time, kind of adhere to certain principles of behavior and interaction. It's really, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, that's what intrigues me about it. Um, I mean, it's one thing to experience it also. I mean, I, I, I think part of the reason this thing works is literally because it was like put out there, hey, we're going to all be this way. And it just attracted those kinds of people. Um, 
it became like it, it started as this like niche thing. And this is by the way how um movements start to a degree. There's always like the first movers. Basically all the first movers just like said, Hey, we're gonna like, we're just gonna like, go to this place and do this. Uh, so it's like pretty good in that sense, I think. I mean this is enters the realm of something that I don't really understand fully. I just imagine it to be really complicated, but from my perspective it has a lot of the right elements of uh, you know, positive uh, society transformation, but I imagine that's yeah. like really complicated. You got a lot out of it, right? That, that I'm sure, given kind of where I know that your interests lie, and and you and you're right that the fear is at some point it gets so big that it sort of collapses under its own weight. And yeah, I mean, I think if you double and triple it and quadruple it, like at some point, I I don't think it the experience that I've had the last five times I went would be the same anymore. But also, it hasn't happened so far. Like, it's not like last year was no different than it was five years before that. Or this year was no different than the first time I went. But at some point, um, at some point, that's probably the case. But yeah, I do want to check out Burning Man. I'll leave us with uh, one final um, thing. Actually, I'll leave you with a challenge of sorts. Um, I, I know that you have been uh, known to like pop your chest a little bit. I made the mistake of not being able to pop my chest now. Um, I don't think, I think you would actually win right now, but I'm aiming to try to be able to compete with you to, to get a good chest off going. Um, and I need to get a little skinnier, which is the plan. Uh, but yeah, just keep that in mind next time you're going to be popping the chest uh, off the table. And by the way, I had a dream that you like beat me to, like at the, the final table of poker. I remember this. It was like kind of a frustrating dream. But That's amazing like... because you usually have, you're very clairvoyant and in terms of seeing into the future and <laughs> me beating you is definitely part of my, my plan as well, especially right, after well. you took me out of the, the PPC last summer. Um, so I'm looking forward to the chest off. I'm looking forward to beating your ass next time we're heads up. All right, well, as long as I win the chest off, I'm pretty happy, I think, if, if I get second place in the tournament. So I'll take it. I'll take second place uh, to the Mannheim. Uh, I mean, I'll take first place, too. But, you know, um, something like this could happen. Uh, yeah, well, what the, I want the chest off trophy at least. I mean, that's at least, like, there's not too much variance in that, I guess. Or I, don't, I don't know. Whatever. Uh, just be, be prepared, buddy. Good luck, Django. All right, well, thank you for your time and for being on the podcast. It's been great, Mr. Mannheim, Eurotrash, uh, Burning Man Trash, uh, Prince Philip. Uh, I'll see you in Bobby's room with limited buttons on your shirt. And, uh, yeah, good luck. All right. Take care, Django.